Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Today, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. Today is Friday, August 5th, 2011. Episode 216 is being broadcast from our studio in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Cliff Slotnick, known as the Z-Man. My co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, is on the road teaching a mold remediation course in Virginia, and it will be participating today remotely. At the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IEQ Radio Trivia Question, an interview with Restore and Indoor Environmental Professional Kent Rawhauser, Roundup at the end of the show. Check out our Facebook page at IAQ Radio Program. I write and post a blog after each show. Check it out at our website, www.iaqradio.com. Now it's time to thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. To listen to the show live, follow the link on your invitation or go to our website, www.iqradio.com. The show can also be downloaded from our website and from iTunes. Don't forget that you can earn ABIHCM points, IICRC continuing education credits, or ACAC renewal credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is Joe dot use at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the schedule of the training courses you trust at iaqtraining.com. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IEQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. Congratulations to... Joe Pieron from Powder Springs, Georgia, for being the first person to answer last week's trivia question, identifying equilibrium moisture content as the dynamic condition in which the moisture content of wood is neither gaining nor losing moisture. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, August 5th, 2011, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question. What mold is used to make blue cheese? 
Kent J. Rawhauser is the owner and founder of A&J Specialty Services, Inc., located in DeForest, Wisconsin. The firm was founded in 1984. A&J is a full-service water, sewage, mold, fire, and smoke damage restoration firm, along with providing residential and commercial carpet cleaning services. Kent is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin at Madison and is the holder of multiple industry professional certifications. Recognized as an expert in mold remediation and water damage restoration, Kent is one of only 80 people worldwide to have earned his designation as a water loss specialist and is one of the 30 certified mold professionals certified through the Restoration Industry Association. How about some music? Growing mold in my heart. Growing Okay. Well, Kent, when you were at the University of Wisconsin, Madison, um, were you thinking about going into the cleaning and restoration business? No, Cliff. I didn't. I didn't have a clue back in uh, 1981 when I graduated. I'd be in this business today. Uh, what What made you get into it? Well, after um, after I graduated, uh, my wife and I had moved to Texas for a couple years. I was, an estimator for a commercial insulation business and always wanted my own business. So uh, my junior and senior year of college, I had a good friend who had an asbestos abatement contracting business. And then in the summers, I did asbestos abatement and I ran projects. So um, I, he, got, uh, he got a call one day about uh, an opportunity uh, for a business to clean acoustical ceilings. And uh, I looked into it and uh, decided... That's what we wanted to do. So in 1984, we sold our house and moved back from uh, Dallas, Texas, and started our started A and J uh, cleaning acoustical ceilings. Joe, hello, Kent. How's my sign there, Cliff? It's good, Joe. Good. I'm, I'm, I was reminded when listening that the uh, the music doesn't sound as good on the on the phone as it does on the recordings. But uh, Kent, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, great to have you. And I didn't realize we have similar backgrounds. Um, you know, I was doing, I was in college to be, become a school teacher and started doing asbestos consulting, not contracting, in the summer and uh, ended up doing one year of substitute teaching and never, never went back uh, after I started doing asbestos consulting and then training, et cetera. So, it's always great to hear uh, similar backgrounds from people I didn't realize had them. But um, I guess my my big question at this point would be, um, how is the business disaster restoration business for you at this point in time? Are you you seeing things growing? Are they you know contracting a little bit, staying the same? You know, you know, Joe, the, the industry from where I'm from, the Midwest, I mean, Madison is. You know, we're about three hours, you know, northwestish of Chicago, and about four hours south of, of the Twin Cities. Um, American Family has their headquarters there. And in a, in a, oh, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine is the VP there. Uh, we were talking, and he said, "Hey, you know, life is great for them because claims were down 30 percent." All right, so that's great for the insurance company, but that doesn't translate very well in for for the you know the restorers. So since that time, it's been uh, the best I can I can call it is weird because business will be will do really well and then it kind of drops off the face of the earth is how it's been about the last two and a half to three years um, since you know that was the little crash that we had here a little while ago so you know right now it's it's a matter of figuring out you know and consistently marketing to all of the possible places where before you could you could have you know limited. You know, or, or I guess I had a little more laser focus on who you wanted to go after. I, I don't find that we're, we're able to do that now in the restoration business. Did, did you have a, a kind of a niche before for your company, and now you're expanding into other areas? I'm just curious, what's the background? Well, our company, is just kind of how we got to where we are today. We started cleaning the acoustical ceilings. Acoustical ceilings led us into the carpet cleaning business. Carpet led us into water damage. And uh, we had done water damage for a number of years, and you 
know, in, in 99 when the big uh, mold craze hit, um, I was actually pretty bored with the business at that time. So mold came at a really good time because I spent, the, you know, 99, 2000, 2001, I think I went to every school or training that was possible uh, to get up to speed with mold. And so uh, with that, then, then came a lot of the big changes that we've seen in, in drying. I mean, you know, pretty, pretty much in the old... Uh, this is a really broad statement, but, you know, back before 2000, you know, drying was dehusing fans. And then, you know, things have changed where, you know, all the, all the different things with heat and, and, you know, desiccants have become a, a bigger thing for smaller contractors and, you know, the vortex drying and top-down drying and all that stuff started coming about. Um, so that got things exciting again in, in, uh, in the business. So where it's brought us to today is that uh, our niche, our niche and our, I guess, our reputation has always been as the technical expertise, you know, the leader. If, it, if, it's, if it's difficult, if it's uh, complicated, um, that's where, where A&J gets the call because of our training and our expertise and, and all these different styles and, and areas of the business. Kent, do you think that your training in asbestos abatement um, – you know, gave you an advantage in disaster restoration and then mold remediation? You know, Cliff, it, it, um, uh, disaster restoration uh, a little bit. You know, what asbestos abatement, you know, back when you look at, you know, 79, 80, 81, when I did asbestos abatement, I mean, we used, you know, a respirator was an 8710 mask and, and we didn't have, you know, uh, HEPA filtration or anything like that. Um, but I did learn how to build containment, and I learned how to build containment well. So as it comes into the restoration side of things, you know, we build drying chambers. So it's very easy to, you know, to put up walls for drying chambers. And then, as, you know, as you walk into mold, there's, in the big picture of things, there's not a huge difference between containing for asbestos and containing for mold. So, I, you know, I understood decon chambers. Then, you know, the, the change was all of the, the depressurization and stuff that weren't in the asbestos business back in, you know, in, in 1980 that, that are there now. So that, that's probably the part that, that I had to learn um, new from the asbestos work that I'd done before. Joe? Uh, yeah, Kent, I'm curious. Lately you have been... And, and I don't know, maybe all along you have been very involved in indoor air quality issues in general, but I know lately with your becoming a member of the board of directors of IAQA and going to conferences like indoor air, et cetera, that you're at least um, more publicly involved with indoor air quality. I'm wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about the differences between or maybe the similarities between the restoration business and the indoor air quality business? Well, you know, indoor, all right, I'm just going to, I'll define them first. I mean, restoration, uh, the restoration business is, is essentially emergency response to some kind of disaster, water, fire, you know, mold, uh, you name it. All right, so, so that's what the restoration industry is, where the IAQ business is, is more planned. We don't have as many, you know, emergencies. You know, somebody pick up the phone and says, you have to, you know, come and do it this very minute. So um, uh, the IAQ business gives me, the, gives me the, uh, the opportunity to actually think and plan and then to work with other experts, to work with somebody like you, Joe, or, or, uh, or uh, you know, a certified industrial hygienist or, you know, the IEPs that we have out there. We get a chance to think and write a scope and get other thoughts and opinions on, on how you're going to set up and how you're actually going to do the work. That's probably one of the biggest difference uh, between IAQ and restoration that I've You know, to build on that question, uh, you know, in doing disaster restoration, Kent, they call you out on a drying project or a fire restoration project, and you are the guy. You determine the scope. You determine the price. Uh, you know, no problem. One guy, one company does it all. And then when you go into 
an IAQ project, you know, all of a sudden there's this conflict of interest, you know, that may exist where you can't be the expert on what needs to be done and then be the expert that's doing it. Uh, you know, do, do you find any disconnect there, you know, between the two of them? And one side you can wear all the hats and the other side you can't? It gets, to be, it gets to be a challenge, uh, Cliff, from the, the standpoint of, of how you train your people. You know, you, you, you train and um, for disaster response. Okay, so it, it doesn't. One thing that's, that's in common with both: when you walk into either an, an IAQ or a mold situation, or you walk into a flood, you usually have a, a, a client there who's in some sort of distress. Right? You know, might. My, my health is being affected by this mold that's here, help me, or I've got, you know, six inches of water in my basement or in, the, in, the, in my business here, get it out. So you've got somebody that's in distress. So the first, the first thing you got to do is you got to learn how to talk to them and relax. And the biggest thing is to listen. Very often, some of the projects we've done that, um, that people have just praised us, we've actually said very little. We just go in and sit down and listen to them for a half an hour or an hour, and they feel well, you're the greatest person in the whole world. And then what happens, you know, restoration, then we go to work, and you're right, we set the scope. Well, with, with a mold situation, and, you know, it goes back to when, you know, I'll say, you know, 99, 2000, when, when mold really hit the, hit the scene here, um, to have that consultant there, um, Today it's harder to, to get people to do that than it was in the very beginning. In the very beginning it was like, nope, we got to get this consultant. He's going to do this, this, and this. You're going to do this, this, and this. Then, then it comes back to what's the relationship between the contractor and the consultant, and then what's the relationship between the contractor, consultant, and the client. Because, you know, sometimes a, a consultant's going to say you need to do X, Y, Z, and, and the contractor might disagree or vice versa. And then you got to bring the client into place because now the client's got to pay for whatever you do. The client's going to pay for it either by paying for what you do or paying for, you know, the results at the end um, and what they have to live with. So does that answer, is that answering your question, Cliff? Yeah, but I, it just seems that in one situation, you know, you're allowed to call the shots and in, in the yeah. other, uh, <laughs> you're, you're not. And it's, you know, it's either you're the quarterback or you know, you're not. And yeah. I don't know. I just wondered whether, you know, to me, to me, there was always a disconnect there, you know, in restoration and pest control, both businesses in which I was involved with, you know, I got to be the quarterback and not that I, you know, it's just, I, I got to make the decisions and, you know, the business was built upon making good decisions for clients and, you know, doing the right thing. And, uh, having someone who may have no experience at all in actually doing the work, tell me how to do it. Uh, occasionally bothered me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, like you know, you're exactly right. You know, and what what I learned early on, Cliff, is is, is that that uh, I had to learn who that con- who that consultant was because very often we had yeah people that I mean I love CIHs, but in, in a lot of cases CIHs don't know a whole lot about mold when they when especially early on. So they would come in and they'd set all kinds of things based on. CIH stuff and, and have no relationship to the, to mold and what we have to do with mold. That was frustrating at the, at the beginning, very frustrating. Then there gets to be a point for me where, when, especially when you get into some really uh, tough situations that, um, uh, you know, liability, you know, lawyers have been involved in mold remediation from the, almost from the very beginning. And it's really comforting for me to, to look back and say, hey, well, I tell you what, that's the consultant's call, not mine. Let's let him make that decision. After, after the first probably couple of years, that got to be very comforting and reassuring to be able to shift that liability or at least shift some of the responsibility. Mm-hmm. Joe. So, Kent, you, do, you did a great job of... Uh, summarizing what I hear all the time from disaster restoration people in my classes. The other thing I typically ask, and it's kind of a follow-up to the, your answer on the previous question, is it, you seem to indicate that early on in the mold business, at least, 
you had consultants on most projects, and now you don't seem to have them as often. And I'm curious, can you give us a ballpark idea of, of how often you do get a consultant and what types of projects, just in, maybe for your part of the country? In, in our part of the country, Joe, right now, um, smaller residential projects, all right, when I say smaller, like under $5,000 uh, residential projects, um, we are seeing very few consultants today. And, and a big part of that is because they don't want to pay for uh, the cost of the consultant. Right? So an example is, you know, even if you can get a consultant to do a, a PRV, a post-remediation verification, for $500, the job is five thousand. Now they're adding ten thousand, you know, ten percent to their job. So what we're finding, and, and, and a lot of times on smaller uh, commercial jobs, like property managers, facility managers, who have now they've been through the mold thing, and they have an understanding, they're more and more willing to uh, to look and say, okay, um, I don't want to pay for a consultant. And I said, okay, then here's what I suggest we do. We, we put together our, our work plan or scope of work, lay it out exactly what we're going to do. We agree to that. We agree to, all right, if we find more, these are the steps that we're going to take. And then at the end, it's a, a visual inspection with the, the property or facility manager or the homeowner and, and somebody from, from A&J. We go through and... At the end, we sign off. They say, yes, this is acceptable. Everything's been set up front, and we're using that as a PRV. <clears throat> and then when the projects get bigger, more complicated, um, that's when we start to see consultants again. And I'm curious, if you don't mind, Cliff, I need to slip one more in here. Sure, go ahead, Sean. Kent, how often are insurance companies on insured losses covering the cost of a consultant in your experience, and does it vary by insurance company? That's a great question, Cliff, because it, it, Joe, it varies so much by insurance company. And I'm, I'm not going to, it all be better off if I don't name insurance companies. But, <laughs> um, there's a lot of, a lot of limits for coverage, right? Now we're, we're finding that insurance companies are actually covering mold. Some still exclude it, but some have you know five thousand dollars automatically. Others you can buy more. Right? So one insurance carrier that we work with, when we get onto a the water loss, and it's either been long enough that mold is developed or or mold is discovered, they automatically kick in. All right, we have five thousand dollars worth of coverage. They bring in a consultant to do the initial in investigation. I mean, we might be there drying already, but they'll do the initial initial investigation. And with this insurance company in our area, what this, what this consultant does is he goes through and he kind of decides, this is water damage, this is mold. And then we go to work and the, the $5,000 worth of coverage works on this part, and then we give the rest of it is all water damage. So we'll, we split our, our estimates up. Then the consultant comes back and we'll do a PRV and essentially do the PRV on the the entire place. In contrast, we have other insurance companies that, you know, it's a, it's a covered loss. Homeowner's been gone for, you know, for a week and there's a water heater blew out in the basement and now there's mold. And they'll walk in and say, I'm not covering it. There's mold here. You have no coverage. So it's such a wide range of what they're doing right now. And then me personally, I think, I think the, the old squeaky wheel syndrome still works. If you complain enough, they they will start doing things that that uh, they wouldn't normally do. That's fascinating. The first description you gave, Ken, it sounds like the insurance company is bringing in the consultant basically to clarify for them what's covered and what's not. So they're really towing the line with respect to that that the, that. Um, limit of liability on, on the mold end of things. That's the first time I've heard of that one. That, that's something that I'll have to warn future uh, clients of mine that they may start to see down the road. 
and, and actually, Joe, it, it turned out to be a good thing because uh, the, the consultant that, that we worked with um, uh, has, uh, has the insurance company's um, trust. So parts that, that other insurance companies, when they see some mold, they would just not cover any of it. They're covering more and more of the water. They're covering it more and more as water because they'll classify it into black water and not classify it into mold in some cases. So the insured has coverage and has unlimited coverage almost versus not having, you know, or only having $5,000 worth of coverage. So I've, I've found it to be a good thing when they do it like that. Kent, on this black water that, that you said that the CIH is putting it into that category, uh, what um, basis, upon what basis do they put this water damage into that black water category? It's uh, two things, Cliff, and actually they, they follow the S500 pretty closely by, you know, right, so what's the source of the water? You know, if it was, you know, if it's, it's a, a gray or black water source, that's pretty easy for them to stick it in there. And then secondly, it's, you know, how long has it been there? How long has it been wet? So if it's wet, you know, usually, you know, three, four days, then they start to say, all right, this is black water. And, you know, then they look for the areas where the mold is the worst, and then they consider that mold. So that's, that's, that's how they're doing it. And I, I want if you wouldn't mind, before we go to halftime, maybe if you, you could, for our, our less experienced disaster restoration contractors out there, we've got some people coming in that don't have decades of experience. You've learned the hard way over the years, some, some interesting tips, I'm sure, for people who do this type of work. I wonder if you could share one or a couple with our listeners. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to, Joe. I, one thing that I, that I really I, I've learned and both through, I mean, we've been involved in lawsuits. We've been sued. I've been an expert witness for both water and mold, so I've been in, involved in a lot of things. One of the things that always seems to, to come back to is that the restoration contractor or remediation contractor, you're still considered an expert. Right? So if, if you know through your training that, you know, I really should have an air scrubber on this or I really should have containment or I need this much dehumidification, it's on our shoulders to put it in. Now, the hard part sometimes is, is like with, especially with air scrubbers, it's the black water loss. I mean, you look at the S500, the S500 says, you know, it's wise to put in a, an air scrubber. Insurance adjusters very often, um, and sometimes facility managers, will argue with you saying, well, you only needed that for the first day, or you didn't really need that. It wasn't that bad. Uh, it still comes back to if you, if you ever get into into a legal situation, the, the insurance adjuster and the facility managers, they're not expert in, in, in water damage or an expert in mold remediation. So my opinion, you're better off to put the scrubber in and potentially not get paid for it than to have to pay your lawyer, you know, even two or three hours worth of work just to, you know, to, to try to get you paid for it. I think, yeah, I think that's a great tip. I think what we're going to do now is uh, let's go to halftime. association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services. 
the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, uh, Kent, I... I went over your website in getting ready for the interview, and I thought that you had some really good uh, answers to frequently asked questions. And there are a couple uh, that, that I'd like to, to go over if we could. Uh, the first one is, you know, in the event of a claim, must I hire the restore my insurance company recommends? Well, actually, actually no, you don't. Um, yeah, insurance policies, as uh, I understand, and on expert insurance policies, tells us as, as an insured, we have, the, we have the right to hire whomever we want to be able to do um, work in our, in our home or, or in our building. Okay. Uh, another one would be, uh, can my insurance company hire a firm to repair my house? Uh, actually, no. Your, your insurance companies. Uh, I've never signed a contract with an insurance company. The insurance company is, is always going to require that the restoration or mitigation contractor signs a contract with the, the homeowner or the business owner. They may fund it, they may pay for it, but you don't sign a contract with the, uh, with the insurance company. If I was a homeowner and my home suffered a loss, am I obligated to disclose the damage and repairs to a future buyer? My understanding is that, uh, depending upon the state, that yes, yes, you do. With some place within the insurance laws, it 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 tells that that uh, that you, you should be telling that buyer that you know X Y Z happened and how you and how you mitigated or or, or restored the loss. Okay, over to you, Joe. I'm curious, uh, Ken, on on the first answer you gave that you know obviously we don't have to. Um, as you said, you don't, you don't have to necessarily hire the company that your insurance company, I guess, recommends or whatever terminology they use. Um, but uh, obviously, building owners and property owners feel, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know if I want to call it squeezed or, or, or just feel an obligation or feel like, well, if I don't hire these people are they going to hold it against me somehow what's your experience been with respect to that and what would you suggest a homeowner do to make themselves feel comfortable that the insurance company will not hold that against them that's a that's a really good question it's a really tough question cliff uh, or joe um when, when something comes to do work in, in your home or in, in your building, um, ultimately you're the one that's got to live with whatever was done there. All right. So um, a, a lot of contractors who are on preferred vendor lists or, or recommended by insurance companies are very good companies. Uh, you know, we're on we're on a couple ourselves. So the key. To me, the key with um, and, and the key is: are you are you comfortable with whoever you're going to have work in your home? All right. So, when, when you look at the market, and I'm going to do a broad stroke and and say you have a residential market being homeowners, single family homeowners, and commercial, which would be you know apartments to office buildings and things like that. Residentially, a water loss probably happens once in your lifetime. So it's not like you know you've, you've dealt with this before. So it's it's uh, an intimidating thing to have happen to you. And then when when an insurance adjuster comes in and and starts doing his scope of work and assessing and starts to tell you things 
homeowner kind of feels like, well, I've got to do what he tells me to do. Because regardless of, you know, I know Kent, he's my next-door neighbor, I know what he's going to do. Sometimes people just get get um, almost intimidated. And I'm not saying insurance adjusters intimidate people. I'm making it very clear. But when, when you're going through a situation like that, you get overwhelmed. So what, what a homeowner needs to, in my opinion, what a homeowner needs to remember is that, look, it's still my house, and I need to know who's coming into my house. So if you know somebody or, or you have somebody that you specifically want to use, it's important to be able to do that. On the other hand, you go to, to the uh, commercial side, um, we have a property manager that, that owns 300 rental properties for student properties in, uh, in Madison. Right. When he has a problem, he doesn't pick up the phone and call his insurance agent and say, hey, I've got a, a water damage. He picks up the phone and calls us. We go out and we mitigate, and then insurance gets involved. So he's choosing. He's gone uh, before the fact, before anything has happened, and he's chosen who he wants to work with, which makes his life much, much easier because he already knows this when we walk in the door and he knows what he's going to get in the end. So that's a, that's a big difference. And so what, what an insurance company will, in my experience, what an insurance company will do with a homeowner is kind of say, you know, you've got to use this guy. And, you know, or we're not going to, we've had instances where they say, well, we're not going to pay for everything if, they don't, you know, if you don't use our contractor. And it scares uh, homeowners into, uh, using the, their contractor on the commercial side. The commercial side is, I mean, they already know the story, so you, you don't usually run into that that issue on the commercial side. Uh, Kent, I'm curious, uh, would you ever suggest someone use, say, a public adjuster or someone else to, to assist them with that type of issue? You, you know, Joe, my my experience with public adjusters has been, uh, it has been a, a positive thing because when, when they've gotten involved is when, when uh, a resolution or an agreement can't be, can't be made, right? So at some point in time, um, the insured needs, needs somebody that understands the insurance policy as well as the, you know, as the insurance company to come in and simply fight for their rights. So there have been cases over the last 27 years, less than probably less than a, than a half a dozen, where I've just, I simply have recommended, here's a, here's a public adjuster, you really should work with him. He'll be able to fight for you the way you need to be fought for. That's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. It was a great answer to the question. I think, like you say, the key is, look, it's your home. If you're not comfortable with who's coming in there, you kind of need to put your foot down and, and say, look, this is why I pay for insurance. And, uh, I appreciate that, uh, and I appreciate you being uh, open with us about the, the whole issue. Cliff, did you have anything, or you want me to keep going? No, actually, I had two. Uh, and, Go for it. And, you know, what I'd like to do, Kent, is a lot of listeners are, are people that have had less experience uh, than you've had or really are indoor environmental professionals that don't have experience on the remediation or restoration side. What's the most challenging job that you've ever done? You know, I was, I've, I've been thinking about that for a little bit, but probably the, the, the most challenging job that, we, that we've done, in, I can think of in the, in the last five years, was a, was a, a home, uh, ranch-style home, three-bedroom home, about 1,200 square feet, where the, the, um, uh, the homeowners had over 200 cats. And, oh. yeah, a ton of cats. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know the hygiene in the house, as you can imagine, wasn't great. And then there was there was some kind of a, a rough water incident that happened too. And and uh, that's when we got called in. So you know we were dealing with with uh, cat urine, which is a, a huge bacteria issue. Uh, we were dealing with water damage that also brought bacteria and mold into it. And then you're you're dealing with the fact that you know that that the the, the city got involved and uh, the whole animal thing got involved about you know what do we do with all these pets because that's you know for 1,200 square foot house that's an awful lot of cats um, and then and then agreeing on a scope um, getting the scope established and then and then agreeing on our, when are we done 
because you know with with uh, with water damage there's a moisture content I want to get to we can all agree to that and I can dry it to that point and mold we can we can agree on here's a standard you know air sample surface samples are going to be at this level you're done it was really difficult to get somebody to come in there and say on all now add urine to that on all three of these you're done so that's one of the most challenging jobs that we that we've done in in, uh, in quite a while. So. What was the disposition of the house after you did it? Did uh, same person live there? Did they sell it? Did they you know what happened then? Um, they they ended up selling it. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to, obviously we had to we had to do a lot of demolition, a lot of drywall, a lot of subfloor. You know, all of the floor coverings all came out. So there was a, a component of of reconstruction that, that was brought into play, but it was uh, yeah, <laughs> an interesting situation because you know, you've got a homeowner who who loves their home and doesn't see a problem with 200 cats, and then you've got the other, you know, when the government gets involved in all those things, then you've got a whole other issue you have to deal with. Joe, I'm curious what um, what other unique projects have you had over the years, Kent? Maybe one other one that uh, you find kind of unusual or challenging that some of our listeners could learn from? You know, one of the most challenging uh, uh, project-specific, but, but projects in this category, is when you have a, uh, we had a project in, uh, in Chicago in a, in a high-rise condominium and uh, uh, water leak happened on like the, uh, the the 12th or 13th floor and it leaked down and seriously damaged three or four more floors below it and it not only challenged, uh, damaged common areas it damaged you know units themselves and you know it went through chases and you know some of the older buildings in Chicago there's a you know there's a lot of chases and stuff that have been you know covered up by new construction so when you come into a situation like that where you have a condo association to deal with, you have con- multiple condo owners to deal with, you, you have, um, and now you have a, uh, an adjuster to deal with on multiple levels. You know, each condominium had their own adjuster, and, and then the, the condo itself had his, his adjuster. And so you're working in all these different things, and then you've got the dynamics of just of the comp- complexity of the job you know, finding the water and finding the mold on multiple levels and what it can do, you know, going between, you know, below a floor, above a ceiling, you know, behind cabinets. That's, to this day, that's one of the most challenging projects that, that we work on is when we work on multiple levels because you have to figure out where that water went. And then when it's multiple levels with mold, now you got to figure out how to get the contamination out how do you test it? How do you do a PRV where you can walk away and feel confident that you've, you know, you've given everybody a good product at the end? You know, Kent, in the, um, in the show announcements, I had discussed the fact that we'd like to get your opinion on, you know, how disaster restoration and indoor air quality, you know, what, what's similar, what's different, et cetera. I'm just curious. You've been on the uh, Indoor Air Quality Association board for, I'm, I'm guessing, about four years now, maybe. Yep. How, how has that changed your um, the way you look at disaster restoration and or how has it changed the way you look at the indoor environmental contracting industry in general? Probably the, the, the single biggest thing, I, so... Just to back up a little bit, you know, you're right. I've been on the on the IAQA board for about four years. When I came onto the IAQA board, I was the, I was uh, the only contractor that was on the board. So I went into remediation or anything on that board, and one of the efforts of the board was to try to get more contractor input. I and during that same time, I was on the restoration council, still on the restoration council for for RIA, the Restoration Industry Association. So. I, I was watching and, and being a part of this dynamic uh, of how two industries that are really very closely tied together were maneuvering to, to, to gain confidence in each other so that they could work together more. All right. So what does that mean? Restoration contractor is looking for a consultant that, 
that he can trust that, you know, when he has a problem, because if you do remediation, you will have a problem. It's not if, it's when. And how is this consultant going to help me work through the problem, or is he going to put me out on the slab and, and, and I get killed because there's a problem? Um, the consultant, on the other hand, wants to find that restoration contractor who really knows what he's doing and wants to do it right. Right, because in both industries we have people who are willing to cut corners, and when when you when you get the mixture of a, of a good consultant and a good restoration contractor, client, the insured, the the owner, that's the one that really wins. So as I entered onto um, into both of these um, uh, the restoration council, I got to work with you know with some of the the smartest, most, you know, experienced restoration contractors, you know, that we have in the country. And then I go on to the, the IAQA board, and I have some of the smartest and, and best consultants and, and or educators. So what it, what it did for me is it, it helped me understand, yes, there's a gap, but it's not an insurmountable gap, and, and, and neither side is afraid to go across the gap. We just don't know how to bridge that gap. And I think over the last uh, four years that we've bridged that gap um, a great deal. So consultants are having more confidence in, in restoration contractors, and restoration contractors are having more um, uh, uh, confidence in, in, uh, in, their, uh, in their consultants. What, what do you look for personally in a, uh, in a consultant? I know it's somebody that's confident, but do you look at their, their education, their, their experience, Certifications, maybe all of the above. Do you weigh one more heavily than another? Uh, Joe, I you know I, I look at um, I look at a um, at a consultant much like I would ask somebody to look at a, at a restoration contractor. Certifications are we can in the restoration industry. You know, right now there's no I can't go to school for a four year degree or get a master's degree in in disaster restoration. All right. In, in the consulting world, I can go to I can go to school and get a, a master's or a PhD in microbiology or mycology. So, um, I, I look at that, and I look at certifications, and, and then I, the, the two key things for me is all right. So how much, how many jobs or how much have you actually been in the field, doing the work or seeing the work being done? Because you know we have a lot of great guidelines and great standards out there that this is going to sound terrible. Quite honestly, I can't meet on every job that I go out because it's just whatever the circumstances are in the job, you physically can't do what they're saying. You know you have to do, so you have to learn how to compensate in other ways. I look for a consultant that that understands what the book says and can take what the book says. And help me and, and talk with me to apply it to, to the real world because it, it just it doesn't always apply what's in the book uh, to the job. It just you, you have to you have to work with it to make it apply. That's great. I, I'm, I'm happy you said that because I think that's important for disaster restoration contractors and others to know that you know we can't always complete things as outlined in the book, and that's. Um, something I run across when teaching classes. It's like this is what this is what the books say, but obviously we can't always meet these levels. That's a great uh, great way of looking at it, uh, Kent. I, I'm curious, Cliff, do you have anything you want me to keep going? No, I, no, I, got another I, no I, I do. I actually have one that was uh, sent in in advance. I slightly reworded it, but uh, with and it deals with certification. I think it's a good time to, to put it in. Uh, Kent, with a level playing field where the state requires licensing of mold contractors, would a third-party accreditation or certification help you separate yourself from the pack? This is a, this is a really good question. And, you know, in, in my opinion, once, once the, the state or the federal government steps in and says, here's the license that you have to have, um, my certifications, and, and I have certifications from ACAC, from RIA, from from IICRC. Um, so I have all the major certifications. I think all of a sudden those become minimized. Uh, they might be a 
a, a, um, a path to follow to get the training you need to get the license. But if, if I'm out marketing myself and we have a state license, for me to say I'm, you know, I'm licensed in the state of Wisconsin and I'm RIA, IIC, RC, AC, AC certified, I don't think the three of those are going to carry much weight. What, what the end users won't going to want to know is, are you state licensed? That now that's taken away. In a lot of cases, that's taken away the the the, um, the weight of any of the certifications. Joe, and I yeah, I'd love to um, change gears just a little bit. You, uh, I, I saw you at Indoor Air 2011. This is the uh, big conference for the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate. It hadn't been in the United States in, I want to say, nine years. Yep. They do it every three years or so. They were trying to bring practitioners and researchers together. I was wondering if first you could give us your general observations and thoughts on the conference, and then maybe I can get a little more specific. Okay. Um, you know, the, the conference in, in, in general, um, uh, for a restoration contractor, it was, you know, walking in the door was a bit intimidating, right? So why was it intimidating? I would, uh, Don Weeks, who helped facilitate the whole conference, was on the IAQA board with me, and he talked, we talked extensively about it beforehand, and, and he's the one that actually you know, suggested and convinced me that it would be wise to go there. So um, the reason it's a little intimidating is because every time, as a, as a restorer, every time I turned around, there's a, a PhD or, you know, or here's a guy that wrote this book that, you know, that you follow, or, I mean, those were the people that, was, that were there. So um, as a restoration contractor, I, you know, yes, I have a great deal of experience, but, you know, I don't have a PhD. I've never written a book on it. So just that natural, you know, what am I doing here mentality came into play. What was really interesting is that every one of those of those people, the PhDs or the researchers that you actually talked to, um, was very excited to to talk to the to the end user because you know all of the research at some point in time has to be put into I'll call it reality. You have to do something with it. And from that standpoint, you know after after the, the first day and and getting to talk to some of those people. Then it got to be um, easier, much easier to be there. And you know, still some of it, some of the research is in, uh, you know, it's in masters and PhD level, um, you know, dissertations and and all of the the the, the, uh, the, the nomenclature and the wording and stuff. Some, you know, I mean, when when you talk to a homeowner and you say, yeah, you have you know aspergillus and stachybotrys and cladosporium, those are really big words to them. All right. Well, that's the kind of words that they're, you know, coming back and talking to you about. Um, so the part of it was, you know, all right, now we got to put this into English so I can understand and apply. Joe, uh, can we go the roundup? You think? Sure. Okay. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw. All right, we're going to go to the roundup. We're going to bring in uh, Dr. Dietrich Wow first. Dr. W, questions or comments? Well, oh my God, uh, how my, how many hours more do we have? <laughs> okay. We just woke up, Mr. Beethoven again. That is all right. <laughs> But I think, I mean, Joe made a, a, a couple of wonderful questions. And, and I, I think, I, mean, it, I, I, I don't care whether you are in uh, restoration or something like this. I think we made a lot of points which are very applicable to normal life. And I have a couple of, 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 of observations I don't think there was anything wrong that we said. 
any rate, the, um, the consultant, I am a consultant. In fact, the company, uh, the name of the company that I have is called Occupational Health Consultant, comma, Incorporated. And I found out, and I'm doing this for 40 years, over 40 years. I found out that if a neutral person comes in, comma, and he is as good as I am, <laughs> um, it is very, very helpful. And I give you one beautiful example. I worked for the Bayer Chemical Corporation, small little outfit from Germany all over the world. And in the early 70s, just after the passage of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, uh, which nobody liked, and I said, hey, this is all garbage, and we don't want to have anybody to look over our shoulder. We take care of everything. Yeah, we know that one. Anyway, and I was there, and I was preaching. I said, guys, we got to do this and this and this and this. And I was up to date on everything that came out of Washington. No doubt about it. And everybody, uh, in fact, there were actually people in the corporation who thought that my paycheck was coming from OSHA, which is interesting. <laughs> I hired at one time a consultant. His name happened to be Dr. Morton Korn, uh, 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 one of my professors who, in fact, he signed my uh, doctoral dissertation. And... Uh, we had a huge auditorium, and they were everybody who was yeah, interested in it was invited. There were like 200 people, eh, not quite 200, 150 people. And Morton Korn, who is a wonderful speaker, by the way, outstanding speaker, <laughs> he told the audience the same thing that I had been preaching for one year. And everybody came out of the meeting and said, you know, Dieter, that guy is really fantastic. You know, I was garbage. <laughs> <laughs> he kind of, is dead on, huh? <laughs> kind of interesting. On the other hand, I think we do need a consultant. I'm not making advertisement here for myself, but I don't want the fox to take care of the proverbial hen house. That is not a good idea. Joe made one of the questions, and Ken answered that one beautifully, on the general insurance issue. And uh, I said that before. Yeah, if you buy a car insurance, anything that breaks is not covered. We know that. <laughs> Guaranteed. Um, and, in fact, I just renewed my homeowner's, uh, for September, uh, homeowner's insurance. And, again, Ken uh, said, I mean, you know, it does seem to make a difference who your insurance ca uh, carrier is. I have two good friends. Gene, who is two houses down from me, had a water leak, of course, when he was on vacation for two weeks. It, interestingly, that, that was that plastic line for the ice maker in the refrigerator. I thought that was the only incident in the United States until I talked to a couple of people said, no, dear, it happens all the time. So there's something wrong with that line over there. And the other one was in Joe's house when he was on vacation for two weeks and his neighbor saw the water coming out of his garage door. Uh, when, uh, and, and, and big uh, uh, water damage, no question about it. I mean, the floors were gone, the couches were gone, and, and, and the ceilings were gone. You name it, it was gone. And the one insurance, uh, uh, Joe, it took forever. Everything worked beautifully, and the other, and I'm not going to name insurance companies. In fact, I don't even know Joe's insurance company. I know the insurance company of Gene next door here, and uh, the way they, uh, uh, it was handled was, yeah, I mean, a difference of day and night. The other thing, and uh, Ken mentioned that too, which is interesting to me, when we are talking about water damage and mold, hey, I have no mold problem in my house. My house is bone dry. There is no active grow anywhere that I know of. And if it were there, it's the size of a dime or a quarter or something like that. And now if you have a water damage, well, if, if I dump a heck of a lot of water in my house, I'm going to have a mold problem. Now, is that a mold problem? 
or is that a water problem? And Ken pointed that out. This is the thing you have to figure out. Uh, what else can I say? Turn off, turn off uh, the uh, main supply of the water when you patient. I have downstairs a hot water tank, and I wrote the bit on it. I installed it myself, 1989, and I know I'm going to have to turn off <laughs> the water supply. The other thing, the other thing, there are two more things, quickly ones. What interests me is that in the last year or so, maybe last two years, there are so many commercials for insurance. Here, buy this insurance, you save $300, buy this insurance, buy... I've never seen ads like that 10 years ago. And the other thing Ken mentioned also, I was on a job in uh, uh, about an hour and 15, uh, hour and a half again, um, uh, from my house in uh, in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, north of Pittsburgh, and I uh, investigated a water damage, and the guy was still complaining that the insurance company didn't do it right. I walk into this house. I almost got killed by the smell. There were six dogs outside, and guess where they were during the day, and guess where they were during the night. I couldn't believe it. And he said that the insurance company didn't do the right job. They repaired the water damage, but they were, I don't think they were uh, responsible for the, 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 the pet urine. Yep. And the other thing with Ken, don't be ashamed. I would love to have lunch, breakfast, or dinner with Albert Einstein. I have no idea what the, the bottom line is of what made him so famous. But I would not be intimidated with him because I have a little bit of common sense, and I'm pretty sure that he does, and I can uh, uh, talk to him about something else than uh, relativity, and we're going to get along just fine. So don't be intimidated that you say, yeah, I, I, I'm a doctor. I'm Dr. Weil. You don't have to be intimidated. I gladly sit down with you have a beer, we can talk and solve all the problems of the world in, what, five minutes? I talked enough. I have a, 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 a couple of other uh, notes over here, but uh, maybe we should have the roundup a little bit longer. <laughs> okay. Well, we can. Okay. Joe? Kent, I just want to ask one more question about Indoor Air 2011. I don't, it's not even so much about the conference as it is about what you think, if you could, and you could get these researchers to focus on a particular issue, what issue do you feel needs more research and that would be more helpful for you to complete the type of work you do if we had better research on it? That's a, that's a great question, Joe. It's a big one. But, you know, I think that, that probably the one thing that would help uh, the end user is, you know, let's get some, let's get some research that, that verifies cleaning methods clearer or better than what we have now. You know, HEPA, wipe HEPA, do you use foam, do you use hydrogen peroxide? There's all these different things, you know, how much air scrubbing really needs to be done. You know, I have one, one consultant says, you know, scrub for eight hours afterwards and that's all the time you need. I have others that say you got to leave air scrubbing on for 48 hours afterwards. So, so to, to get down to some of the, I'll call it the brass tacks of what we do, help us get the best cleaning methods and to be able to consistently apply them. And then, you know, on the, on the air side, how much scrubbing, how much, you know, how much is enough? That, that's what I would ask for, Joe. And I just want to say thanks so much for joining us. I know I'll be muted here in a moment, but we really appreciate having you come on and join us on IAQ Radio. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. It's a pleasure and honor. Thank you. Kent, we always like to give our guests the last word. Is there any final comment that you'd like to make or anything else that you'd like to add? You know, of course, uh, the last word I would say, you know, if you're a new contractor, you know, stay within your means. You know, don't take on projects that you, that you can't. There's enough other experienced contractors out there that will gladly help you and not steal business from you. And consultants, you know, get to know your your uh, your remediation.
mediation, your restoration contractor, because sooner or later we're going to have to work together. It's a lot better experience if I know you when I walk in the door than meeting you and have to try to figure things out once we get there. Kent, if if our listeners wanted to get in contact with you, what's your website? Website is uh, www.ajrestores.com. Okay. Uh, before we leave, we want to thank today's guest, Kent Rawhauser, my co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, our engineer, Austin Novak, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our growing audience of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.